Welcome to Cooper Talk, presented by Walk My Mind. Bring your body, bring your mind. This is Walk My Mind, a holistic approach to wellness that connects the dots of physical, mental, and emotional health. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest, and uh, we, we have a great we have a great show today. Mike, I'm very excited to have this gentleman on. He's had a great great career in music, and I actually just listened to his solo album last week. And uh, it, I really dug it, people. And it's called Angels and one Arm Jugglers. But we're going to talk about his whole career. And my guest is Chris Barron. How you doing, Chris? I'm good, Steve. Thanks for having me. Hey, no problem. I, I listen. We'll talk about the album in a little while. But I really dug it. Uh, you're, you're hey, I'm, I'm sure that your coolness stands up, um, irregardless of uh, you know, regardless of your guests. Yeah, you know, I, I try to be cool. <laughs> anyway, uh, but that's I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's like a cool, modest thing to say. Though. I like that. So style points. Exactly. Now, I, I was reading your bio, and uh, you grew up in. You were, you were born in Hawaii, I believe. Then you spent your some of your childhood yeah. in New York, and then you went to Australia, then you came back to New Jersey. Now, when did you start playing music? When did you find an interest in music? Um, you know, I was like. One of my earliest memories, probably, probably six, five or six years old, I was watching TV, and Shirley Temple came on. So I, this would have been 1973 or four, And I saw Shirley's Good Ship Lollipop. And I was like, I'm going to marry her. <laughs> and and we're going to do that. I don't know. I was too young to know the difference between like singing and dancing. And, you know, I didn't know what I wanted, what that meant, but I guess I meant show business or something like that. So, I mean, I, I've, I've always wanted to, um, I didn't know that Shirley Temple was like, you know, in her late sixties at that <laughs> at the time. Um, but, uh, I, I took guitar lessons kind of off and on, you know, from pretty early age, like probably, probably nine. Um, and then, I think I really got interested in the guitar, you know, in my early, in my early teens. And, um, I had a guitar teacher, um, Barry Peterson. I was, um, he was teaching me some songs and I took, you know, some different chords from the different songs and sort of playing them together. And, you know, he came in, I was like, I put these chords together, not knowing if I was going to be in trouble or something like if he'd be like, Hey, just practice what it gave you. And, he was like, yeah, that's cool. You know, you take some chords you like and you just play them together and you go like da 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 do 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 Pretty soon that turns into lyrics. You write those down in a notebook with the chords and that's how you write songs. And I was like, whoa, wait, what? Are you serious? Like, that's it? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, well, what about the, you know, those lines and the squiggly dots and stuff? And he was like, you think Bob Dylan and John Lennon know how to read music? And I was like, Yeah. I was like, no, they, that's how they write songs. And so that was it for me. I must have been like 14, 13, 14 years old. And um, I um, I never was like a virtuoso instrumentalist. Um, and um, But I wanted to sing. You know, I've, I've always had like a talent and a penchant and a desire to sing. And... Um, so rather than like learn other people's tunes, it was easier for me to actually write songs. So I've been writing songs, you know, since I was a, since I was a, you know, relatively young person. And um, when when you're I guess some, I say when yeah. you're fourteen, when you're at, at that age, what do you write about? I mean, that's you know, that always fascinates me. I talk to so many people, musicians who have written for their whole life, and you know, of course, you're writing 
style changes through the years. But when you're 14, I mean, it, it's sort of like, I mean, that's an accomplishment because most of us, you know, we can't even ask a girl out at 14. We don't know how to put the wording. But, <laughs> you know, it's actually really funny because the first song I, you know, wrote, and I use the term loosely, was um, a parody of Sexy and 17, the, 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 the Stray Cat song. It wasn't a parody. It was just like to the tune of Sexy and 17. And it was um, about the my hometown ice cream shop that I worked in called um, Thomas Sweet. So it was like scooping at Thomas Sweet. You know, sexy and 70, scooping <laughs> at Thomas Sweet. The next song I wrote, you know, I, I composed from scratch. And um, it's funny because my wife, like, I was like, doing a show and I dug this tune up it's called Mabel and it's a song about a waitress um, it's like I, I got this waitress her button said Mabel she cleaned the silverware with the rags of the table I had a coffee and a donut and I stayed for three hours then I went straight home and took three cold showers even though she has no class Mabel is the girl I do adore even though her grammar's bad um, every time she speaks, I love her more. And it's, you know, got these weird chord changes because I didn't really know, like, I was like, oh, a chord progression. I'm just going to, like, this is my idea of a chord progression. And I played it for my wife. And I was like, yeah, this is the first song I ever wrote. Ha ha. And she was like, wait, that's the first song you ever wrote? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And it's actually, like, it's actually a pretty good song. You yeah, know? it is. Um, like, I'm... Like I probably will record it one of these days. I um, um, I put it on a record. Like it's probably good enough to be on a record. So I mean, I just like I I look at at, at my uh, you know like my daughter is an amazing artist and she was just pretty damn good at it from a really really early age and I, and I think I was pretty I think I was pretty good at songwriting and I think I had like an uncanny sense of. Um, you know, like w what would make a good song from a pretty early age. Well, you know, it's funny. I know I read that you, you went to high school in Princeton. Yeah. And I went to high school in Cherry Hill, which is an hour away. And the towns yeah, are yeah. very, very comparable. What was it like for you going to high school as, and knowing you wanted to get into music? Because, you know, I think your high school is probably like mine. Like people weren't really being musicians back then. I mean, there was a few guys, but no one said, I mean, everyone's like, you got to go to college. You got to go to college. What was it like yeah. when you wanted to do that? I know you met John Popper in high school and I guess he had the same ideas, but what was it like for you being a musician in your high school back then? Well, there was a really funny dichotomy in my high school because um, um, the socioeconomic pressure was certainly in the direction of like um, t taking on like a professional life, like being a doctor or or a lawyer or a financier of some sort, and going to college. And um, most of our friends were going to college, and and a number of them were were going to like Ivy League schools or, or, you know, the echelon below that, like very high echelon schools. But at the same time, we had this hellacious music program that um, John Popper came out of and, um, and, and, and me and um, Dave Wilder, who, who uh, composed... Um, with uh, Macy Gray, her big hit, I Try to Walk Away and I Stumble, I can't remember the title of it. There were tons of, of like 
really good musicians. Our jazz band, John was in the jazz band. Our jazz band um, won tons and tons of of, um, of competitions. And our both my sophomore year of high school, I was in the choir. John Popper was in the choir. Um, Brendan Hill, who's the drummer of the Blues Traveler, was in the choir. Um, they were later in the choir. They weren't in the choir that. Um, the year that we ended up going to Vienna, like my high school choir, when I was a sophomore, we went to um, Europe without both the orchestra and the choir went to Europe together. And we did this big tour, which culminated in the Vienna Youth and Music Festival. We took second place in the world for amateur um, choirs. And I think our orchestra won. Um, so I had like... Um, you know, it was just really funny because on, on one hand, you know, everybody was like, um, you know, you, I, I, cause, you know, I was definitely like a misanthrope and a provocateur in high school. So people would be like, well, what are you going to do when you get out of school? And I'd be like, well, I want to be a rock star, you know, which is such an <laughs> asshole thing to say. But at 15, it was like just tripped right off of my tongue. And people would be like, you know, your chances are like one in a million, right? And I'd be like no, your chances are one in a million. Like, I can actually do this. My chances are more like one in 125,000. Um, you know? So on one hand, there was definitely like a lot of pressure, like, what are you going to do with your life? It can't be a musician. But then on the other hand, we were getting this like hellacious training. And I went out into the world later on, and I thought like, you know, I would tell people about, yeah, my choir went to Europe and... You know, I, I was studying music theory with, you know, Portia Sonnenfeld, who's this, you know, amazing conductor. And this was just in my public high school. Um, and I, you know, I realized later on that other schools really didn't have that kind of a music program, you know. So it was just, it was a funny dichotomy. So so when you went to college, you went one year, I believe, did you go to be just, did, were you going to study music or were you just going because a lot of times parents will say, well, go to college. We need something to fall back on. Yeah, and I wasn't quite ready, I think. To, I got into Bennington, which was a really cool school. I was actually pretty excited to go to Bennington. I also, in high school, um, I was um, doing visual art as well. I was doing ceramics. And um, it sounds funny, but I was actually really good at it. And um, um, I went to Bennington, um, Bennington's really actually, the town is famous for its pottery, and Bennington has a really good ceramics and visual arts program. So I went there, like, kind of equally interested in music and visual art. And um, and I really did everything I could in, in the years leading up to me becoming a professional musician, not to become a professional musician. Like, I really tried to do other things, but I just suck at everything else. And um, I'm actually, I was good at ceramics, but I was better at music. And I was like, actually was cooking for a while in a kitchen. And I was, I'm good at cooking, but I'm just better at music, you know. And um, I kept getting these opportunities in music and I kept kind of just going for it. So, you know, at Bennington, um, I studied music and ceramics. The music program there was very, very avant-garde. And um, like if you made if you did, you were in the classical program and you made music, 
sounded like silverware falling down the stairs, people were like, eh. And if you like were in the jazz program and you made music that didn't sound like silverware falling down the stairs, people were like, eh. And so naturally, I formed a band with these guys, um, this guy John, John uh, Myers and um, Mark Okerman, uh, called the Dead Alcoholics with Boners. And we, all of our songs were in G. They were all 12-bar blues. Most of them were um, most of them were Muddy Waters covers, and um, it was just super rudimentary. And the whole school went crazy for us, which was really funny because the whole school was just super avant-garde. You know, the same thing went for like the dance program. You know, if you did if you made a dance piece that had any kind of conventional choreography or ballet in it, people were like, oh. Or if you drew something that was representational, people were like, oh. If you made like a sculpture that wasn't like burnt doll heads, you know, that could, you know, that was like the most representational thing you could include and would be like a burnt doll head in a, in a sculpture. And, and suddenly like everybody went crazy for, for this like, you know, really, really crusty rudimentary um, blues band. And that was kind of my first taste of like, oh shit, you know, I could kind of do this because suddenly I went, you know, from being like just, you know, I was, I was having a good time. I, I had a lot of friends and stuff at Bennington, um, but I went from just being like, um, just, you know, another cool freshman guy to being like the lead singer of the Dead Alcoholics with Boners. <laughs> and then um, my dad's ex-wife, Little Miss Can't Be Wrong, spent all of my college money on like, you know, a Ferrari Dino and a bunch of fur coats and, um, you know, a couple dozen Saks Fifth Avenue suits. And, um, and I was out of college and I went back to my hometown and I worked in the kitchen and tried to, you know, kind of become a professional cook. And the, and one night the blues traveler came and I played them, um, I played them two princes and Jimmy Olsen blues, um, the tunes I'd been working on some other songs. And they were like, dude, you can't just fucking waste away in our hometown. Like they had been living in New York city for a year they were like, you know, we're, we're changing apartments. We need a new apartment. We might as well get an apartment for five guys as for four. You know, it'll be cheaper for us, and it's an opportunity for you to move into the city. They're like, you're not in the band, but, like, you can play in between our sets. And Bobby Sheehan, the late, great Bobby Sheehan, bass player of the Blues Traveler, you know, essentially dared me um, to move to New York City. And I just, I took the dare and moved to New York City with 100 bucks and an acoustic guitar in 1988, 20 years old, and... You know, I still live in New York City. I'm still a musician. What I mean, what what did you do once you got to New York, and how did you how did the Spin Doctors come together? I mean, because you're saying this was '88, and I believe Pocketful Crippling Light came out in '91, so it wasn't that long of a time. I mean, you know, you you I mean, how quick was it till you got a record deal? What was your what were you doing when you first got to New York? You're playing in between sets of blues traveler, but what are you doing to advance your career? Um. Well. I, yeah, I was, I was, I was um, the Blues Traveler had this regular Monday night gig at a bar called the Nightingale Bar, which was um, really like a bucket of blood. My dad called it a, a bucket of blood. I mean, it was, you know, just crackheads. And it was, we, some of the bands in New York sort of transformed it from like this sort of crack bar to a musical destination. And then meanwhile, I got, I got a gig, um, I got a gig at a bar called the Lismar Lounge, which was even worse than the Nightingale Bar. It was, it was um, allegedly owned by the Hells Angels, and um, that place was, like, hellacious. My, my dad came to see me there. I played there every Friday and Saturday night, 
and just for tips, you know, I would like play and then I'd have to walk around with like, you know, a beer mug asking people for tips, these huge, like scary, like bikers and crazy, like horrible New York city, like criminals. Now, luckily, like big, scary people have always liked me because I, I'm just like this skinny, gawky kid, particularly back then, you know, I was like five eleven and, um, you know, 130 pounds. Like, it was just like, so unassuming. And they were like, I love this guy. He sings the blues, you know? And they would sit grab me and be like, all right, here's a buck, kid. Um, so, yeah, I did that. So those were my first, like, I was playing, you know, three nights a week regularly. And then I was, like, down in the subway, man. I was down in the subway, like, just playing until, like, I had enough money to eat. And it was very hand-to-mouth that summer. That first summer was just super hand-to-mouth. Um, sometimes, you know, really not. <laughs> not eating um and um my dad was helping me out with the rent and you know i'm not pretending like you know i'm i'm like you know an upper middle class kid that was never in danger of like starving or anything like that you know um but i was also really proud and i i didn't ask um you know my dad for like additional money my rent was 200 bucks a month so my dad was like covering my rent and um um and I, um, um, but by the end of the summer, the guys were all going back to school at the new school. And I called my dad and I was like, dad, listen, you know, I only got one year of college. Um, I want to go to this music program that all the blues traveler guys are in. It's a really good program, but I don't want to get a degree in music. I just want to go there. I'll work my ass off. I'm going to learn everything that I can while I'm there. But what I really want to do is just meet other musicians and put a band together. And as soon as I can put a band together, I'm just going to quit and I'm going to like go like hell with the band. And my dad was like, go for it. You know? So I, that's that fall. I entered, um, you know, the, the Parsons school of jazz program. And I, um, I had already met Eric Shankman through John Popper and he and I had had like a very kind of, um, uh, you know, we got along great the first time we met and the second time we almost got in a fist fight. <laughs> and um, like I, I saw him in the hallway and I was like, oh man, how's this going to go? And God bless him, you know, he walked straight up to me and he uh, stuck his hand out and I was raised like somebody sticks their hand out, they shake your hand, you shake their hand. So like, you know, we shook hands. He's like, hey, I'm sorry about that bullshit, you know, the last time I saw you. And I was like, yeah, me too. And he's like, hey, we have a jam, like, every, um, you know, Tuesday in room 206. You want to come? I'm like, sure. So I started going to this little jam that they did. And pretty soon, um, Eric and I, like, you know, sort of established this rapport. And a couple weeks later, he came up to me outside of the school on Fifth Avenue and 13th and was just like, Hey man, I got a gig up at Columbia and it's like a blues rock and roll gig. He's like, you know, you're the best blues singer, rock and roll singer in the school. Flattery will get you everywhere. I am a lead singer after all. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, he was like, you want to do it? Doesn't really pay anything. And I was like, sure. So he and I started getting together at his apartment. A day or two later, he's like, I found a drummer. I was like, yeah. He's like, yeah. I heard this guy practicing. He sounded really good. I just knocked on the door and I was like, hey, you want to be in a band? And he was like, yeah, so that's Aaron. And uh, we did this first gig with another bass player and um, and a bunch of horn players. John Popper was on the gig. We played from like 11 o'clock until the sun came up. We played all night. We were just making shit up as we went along. <laughs> After a while, we just ran out of songs and we just started playing like 
just nutty shit off of the top of our heads. The the um, frat that we were playing for just went absolutely crazy. Eric and I had to return like the borrowed car and some of the borrowed equipment. So we were we were um, we had to go back up because we left the microphone up there. So ten o'clock, we drive all the way back up to Harlem from Brooklyn. And um, it's like mid-morning, and there's a guy on the street. We're going in to get this microphone, and this guy's like, were you guys at the party last night? And we were like, Eric and I exchanged a glance. You know, we were like, no. And the guy's like, man, the band was really good. We were like, oh, yeah? What are they called? And he's like, spin doctors? You haven't heard of the spin doctors? And we were like, no, how are they? And he was like, oh, they're awesome. They're like kind of the cool band around the scene now. And I was like, have you seen him before? He's like, yeah, I've seen him a couple of times. And we were like, yeah, this is after our first gig. And like, you know, Eric and I are like exchanging like, you know, glances of wild surmise. Like, wow, I think we're on to something. How'd you get the name Spin Doctors? Or did he give you them or how did that come up? Well, Eric, um, Eric and I were coming up with a few names. really hard to name a band. Um, I actually, in my phone now, have a list of about 250 band names. I just, every time I think of a band name, I just like write it down on my phone because it's so damn hard to name a band. Um, a lot of them are really stupid, but some of them are really good names. But yeah, so we were like trying to name the band um, for a couple of days, and Eric and I were uh, walking along 14th Street in New York to go to this Cuban restaurant we used to eat at all the time. And Eric goes, uh, hey, I got a name for the band. And I'm like, well, what is it? And he goes, uh, Spin Doctors. And I was like, what's that? I was like, no, I go, I go, I don't like it. And he's like, well, you even know what it is? And I was like, no, what is it? And he's like, well, my poetry teacher, Sekou Sundiata, who um, passed away some years ago, uh, was talking about this political phenomenon where, the, you know, because this is a new thing. This is like 19, this is 1988. Um, September, October. He's like, you know, during the Reagan administration, Ronald Reagan would always like misspeak, so they had these guys who would meet the press afterwards, and um, and you know, put the spin on what the candidate or the politician had said. Spin docs, like a media thing. Um, and I was like, eh, I don't know. I think it's too slick. It sounds like a DJ. And he's like, well, if you can come up with a better name. We'll call the band that. And immediately I was like, I'm never going to come up with a better name than that. And that's how we named the band. So, you, so these people, this you, you made an impression on this school. You know, they, you, you know, the guy had seen you before. It always cracks me up when people say that. You know, it's like when you know when you, someone tells you a story that you had told them before. You know, as your story, stuff like that. When people, you know, they're saying to you, "Oh yeah, we saw this band," and you're going, "Okay, we're in the band. You never saw us." But so you know, you, you know, you're onto something good. So now, how do you get that first record deal? What do you do? Well, interestingly enough, like. We were interested in making records, and we were interested in being on the radio and all that kind of stuff. But we, early on, we just established amongst ourselves that our that our true objective was to make a living playing music. And we were like, if we can make a living playing music, we're going to be in the top percentile of the top percentile of musicians. And, um, and then we don't need anything else if we can make a living playing music. So we had like this work ethic, you know, we just, we used to gig like, you know, 10, 11 nights in a, in a row. In New York City, you could do that back then, you know, because people went out every night. 
And um, so it was kind of cool because we were in sort of a powerful position. We, we you know, we just we just play our asses off every night. We got really good because we used to do these really long gigs. Um, you know, we would play from you know nine or ten until two or three in the morning, and you know, four or three, four sets a night. And um, eventually, um, our first manager, David Sonnenberg, had a babysitter who just saw us. Um, she saw us that fall in, um, I guess, maybe 89? No, the, the spring of 89. And, um, oh, sorry, no, fall, I don't know. She saw us in the fall, and then she went home for the summer, and she came back, sorry, she saw us in the spring, went home for the summer, came back in the fall, and saw us again, and felt like we had improved a lot. And David was, you know, David was a manager, she'd never recommended, he knew that she knew a bunch of bands and stuff like that, she'd never recommended anybody to him, but all of a sudden she was like, listen, I really think you need to go and see this band, I think they're really something special. So he took her at her, at her word and came out to see us. He comes out to see us at this little bar in the Mondo County. He sees these like roadies, you know, setting up the stage and stuff. He's sitting there having a beer. And then all of a sudden the roadies like get on stage and start playing. <laughs> and it was us, you know, we, cause we were just like this ragtag, you know, <laughs> bunch of ragamuffins that would just get on stage and like rock our brains out. And, and uh, he was like, you know, approached us and, um, we he gave us a pitch and we were like, eh, no thanks, we're good, we're good. And um, and he was like, listen, if I can't get you a record deal in six weeks, um, like sign with me and I have to get you a record deal in six weeks. And if not, we'll forget the whole thing. And we were like, and he's like, in a record deal you like, you know. And we we're like, all right, cool. And um, three weeks later, we were signed with uh, Sony. So, so when you when you signed, you had to come up with an album. Did you have most of the music intact because you were playing it live? And what was it like? Because you know, you guys would do these epically long sets. So I'm sure you did a lot of improvising. What was it like when you had to condense that into the studio? Well, we had all, you know, we had all um, been Eric and, and Aaron are really accomplished musicians by the time like you know they Aaron was at that point Aaron was like 22 something like that 24 and um as was I and Eric was like 27 and um those guys had been in bands since they were really young so we and we'd been to like jazz conservatories so we like knew how to um we've been trained um in like how to be in a studio and how to conduct, how to conduct a session, how to condense an arrangement, how to, uh, you know, when to like stretch out. So it really wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't that hard for us. And, and, and we had, um, we had, there was a very clear delineation in our repertoire between the songs that were like just jammy and had these like extended parts and then there were tunes that had just much firmer arrangements, like like um, Two Princes and Little Miss Can't Be Wrong. And there were spots in Little Miss Can't Be Wrong and Two Princes where we could stretch out if we wanted to, particularly particularly the end. You know, like, that's how you'd, like, you know, in these bars, like, if you had a tune that had a pretty tight arrangement, you could always stretch the end out. And just, we 
you know, that was like sort of the art of playing in these bars was, you know, just hitting like a stone groove and just like laying into a vamp and and then just lambasting the crowd and getting them drinking and, and selling a lot of liquor. And that's how you got asked back to all these bars, you know. Um, but when it was time to go into the studio, it, it wasn't too hard for us to pare everything down and because we've been trained, we've been trained to do that. We've been trained to, to, um, you know, to, uh, play differently when we were being recorded. So, so you get the album recorded and then now when does it start to take off? I know you went on a tour with, um, widespread Pranic and fish and blues traveler, but when did you, when did you feel like the, the, the album started getting heat? You know, it was, it was, it, did it take a little bit of time or, or, how what was that process yeah we really had to grind it out we went on the road um um for about a year and a half and sony wanted us to come home and make another record and we were like no way you know we're staying out here we believe this is the record we're going to stay out here and keep working and um we were a little bit like for for a certain point for a certain period of time, we were kind of the redheaded stepchild. They were like pushing Michael Jackson and Pearl Jam, and we'd pull into a town, and you'd look at like the local paper, and it'd be like Pearl Jam, Pearl Jam, Pearl Jam's record, Pearl Jam's gig, interview with Pearl Jam, spin doctors, like nothing. And um, and what happened was a guy named Jim McGuinn up in Vermont at um, WEQX uh, station just jumped on board really early and um, they were playing a bunch of our stuff and uh, they put one of our songs into an ad for a local pizzeria, I think. And people started calling and requesting the ad. And then we played um, up near them at a club in, um, they were like Southern Vermont. We played at uh, um, a bar in Albany and um, Jim came out to the gig and it was like 20 below and there was a line around the block. And then the coup de grace was they had a listening party at um, at a local record store for Octung Baby, the U2 album. And more people bought Pocket Full of Kryptonite than bought um, Octung Baby during this like listening party that they had for the for, for you know another band's record. So. We were kind of languishing, but we were being, we were doing well on the road. We just like in terms of like sales and stuff like that, things were just sort of like you know loping along. Um, but Jim, in light of all that stuff, took it upon himself to write this impassioned letter to Sony, and he was just basically like, "You guys, are, you got one of the best bands in the country on your roster, and it's a crime that you're not pushing them harder." And uh, meanwhile, a couple other things went down at a couple other radio stations, and. Um, um, David Sonnenberg, our manager, kind of went in and, and with the letter and with a few of these other like seismic kind of things that were going on and, um, you know, really kicked the record company in the ass and they turned on the great big Sony machine, you know, and like just, boom, they like, you know, this big PR machine of this huge corporation, like just you watched it like kick into gear and all of a sudden, like, you know, six months later, we were platinum. We were like, you know, they got us on, uh, um, Saturday Night Live and they got us on um, David Letterman and we did the TV shows and you know next thing you know we're getting a you know a gold record and a little while later 
we're getting a platinum record. What is that like? Because it happened very quick. You know, you. I mean, it didn't happen. Your career didn't happen quick. Don't get me wrong, because you guys were busting your ass, hitting the road. But what's it like when you, you know, people believed in you. You knew that. People loved your live performances. But what is it like when all of a sudden Sony gets behind you and all these years, I mean, you guys are 24, but you've been playing all your life. What's it like when all of a sudden it just starts accelerating? Like, how does, how do you hold on to what things are and keep grounded? And especially being a lead singer, because you're the person that everybody recognizes in your videos and on SNL. People are going to recognize you. I mean, the bottom line is yeah. lead singers are the man. And you had a different look. It wasn't like, you know, you two had their U2 look. It's like you weren't, you know, the slick, you know, 1990s, you know, the Eddie Vedder had the grunge thing going. You guys had a more earthy look. What is it like? What What is it like when you just start seeing things go, I mean, fast forward? I mean, how do you hold on for that ride? Yeah, you know, I've never had an easy time ex- describing it. It's, um, it, there's a sense of, of like, uh, you know, you're ambivalent. You have more than one feeling at the same time. Like, there's a sense of, um, um, of vertigo, you know, and things moving very quickly because it's exponential. You know, it's you're kind of going along at a pace and you're grinding away. Um, and um, there's definitely like applause and there's feedback coming, you know, positive feedback coming your way. But all of a sudden, it really starts to like uh, amplify. And um, and so, you know, I um wasn't really making a lot of money. You know, I had enough money to like put food in my mouth and, and everything. Um, but like one day I went to the ATM and I got the, you know, the receipt and I had like 2,500 bucks in the bank and I was like, Whoa, that's more than I usually have. That's, that's weird. So like the next day I was like, I bet that, you know, I was like, it must be some kind of mistake, you know, but I could tell anybody. So I go back like, a day or two later, and I have like fifty five hundred bucks in the bank. And I'm like, whoa! These <laughs> all this money into my like, what the fuck is happening? And then, um, you know, I go, I go like a couple of days later, and there's fifteen thousand dollars. I'm like, Jesus Christ! And I go back like the next day, and there's fifty thousand dollars in my ATM. And I just like called up our accountants. I was like, what the fuck is going on? And they were like, yeah, you know, it's it's happening. You're, you know, now the re- the royal, you know, people are buying the records, royalties are rolling in, and. And you're making some money. So it's like things like that where you're just like, what the, who's, when did this become my life? You know, and you know, you walk into a, you walk into a, um, you know, I would walk in a mall to buy like underwear, you know, and um, I had this distinctive, you know, long red hair and a beard. And, you know, somebody's like, oh my God, this guy from the spin doctors. Hey, can I be like that? Like, yeah, sure. And then, you know, somebody else come over and somebody else come over. And then there'd be 300 people in the mall by the underwear, you know, like just, and I'd just be signing like autographs for like three hours, you know, because um, I went out to buy underwear. And, um, and then like, you know, um, I mean, I know you asked me how it felt, but it's kind of easier to like, just give you these anecdotes, you yeah. know, like, like, um, we did, we did, um, we did Saturday Night Live. So at the end of the night, um, you know, when there's that, like, they're, they're doing, like, the band's doing the play out, and, well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming out. And, you know, I'm standing there, and, like, Robert De Niro's on stage, and I just, like, 
you know, we had been watching Raging Bull and Goodfellas and, you know, on the bus, like nonstop, huge, huge fans. So I just like sidle up to him because I'm like, dude, I'm, you know, there's nothing between me and him. I just like sidle up to him and we just start talking. So for like months afterwards, people were like, what were you talking to Robert De Niro about? <laughs> and I'm like, you know, in my mind, I'm like, you know, he was basically like, where are you from? I was like, Jersey. He's like, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, just like completely mundane conversation. Um, but like, suddenly, like, in my mind, I'm like, I just was like talking to Robert De Niro. Like, you know, it just felt like I was in a De Niro movie, kind of, you know. Um, it was just, you know, it was very, some of it was very surreal. Um, but, you know, the funny thing is, the funny thing is, Steve, like, there's a moment way further back, you know, when the Spin Doctors, when we were, like, playing these clubs in New York, um, there were these two clubs in New York called the Mondo Cani and the Mondo Paris. They were blues clubs. And um, they paid the bands really well. They paid you they paid you 250 bucks on a weekday and 500 bucks on a, on a weekend night. So four guys in the band plus, our, plus Jay, our, our manager. So on a, we, we, started, we broke into there and we started playing on weekend nights. And the, the first um, Friday night we played, you know, afterwards I've got like a hundred bucks in my pocket. A hundred bucks. I hadn't seen like a hundred bucks in one place, like, you know, maybe ever. You know, I mean, because I'd gone from being like a child, you know, like working at an ice cream shop to being like a young man in the city. And suddenly I got a hundred. So we went to the Triumph Diner, which was on Bleecker Street. And I had been used to like going into a restaurant and ordering like toast, you know, or like a fried egg, one fried egg or, you know what I mean? Like just getting like the cheapest thing that you could get or maybe some French fries or something. And I sit down, I'm looking at all the cheap stuff on the menu and I'm like, I have a hundred bucks in my pocket. So I ordered like a T-bone steak. I ordered like a, a double thick chocolate milkshake. I mean, something like something that, that's like the height of luxury, like ordering a milkshake, something with no nutritional value that's like cost that much money. And I think I got a side of coleslaw just because I could afford it, you know. And I'm um, sitting there and I'm eating this T-bone steak and I got, you know, the rest of like the hundred bucks in my pocket. And honest to God, like, you know, we've opened up for the Rolling Stones. We've um, been around the world. I've flown first class. You know, I've like done some really, really dreamy stuff. been really lucky in, in music. Uh, but I don't think I ever felt richer than I did like in the Triumph Diner on that Friday night with like a hundred bucks in my pocket. See, it's amazing the stuff you remember. You know what I mean? It's like you think about it. It's, uh, you know, you, I just said you've opened for the Stones, you talked to De Niro, but you still remember that one moment. It's like when I used to do stand-up comedy, I remember when my name was in small, small print at a place in New Jersey and it said Steve Cooper and I think I got paid eight bucks that probably made me yeah. say I was a pro. You know, I wasn't just doing open yeah. mics. I got eight bucks. It was a share of the door. If more people came over, to get more. But you remember those little things. Yeah, yeah. That stuff is, um, there was um, a tiny little radio station we were doing before, like, everything took off. Um, we did a gig in San Francisco, and the bus is pulling out. And um, there was some, like, trade, radio trade rag that had, like, in the back of it, the, the charts for every college station in the country 
and there was one station in like southern New Jersey. We were like number one on their rotation. And it's a tiny little station, you know, who, who knows that there were 10,000 people listening to it. Um, but I was like, we're number one. Like, we're number one right. somewhere. You know, it's only at this tiny little station, but we are number one. And it's like, you know, just a wonderful, you can see you can, that moment when you can say, I'm a professional. I know exactly what you're talking about. Now, I, I want to talk more about the Spin Daggers, but I want to talk about your your album you just came out with. I still call them albums. That shows my age. You know, you you know, you know, guys eventually broke up and you got back together, and I know you lost your voice. What was that like when you lost your voice? That must have been scary as all hell. Yeah, I, you know, it happened to me twice. I lost my voice in um, around 2000, and then it actually happened to me again um, last year. So... Um, and the chances of this particular malady occurring twice are like astronomically small. Um, it's just like a, a really, really shitty, shitty break. And um, um, so, yeah, I mean, I, it, both times it's really been like a, 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 a crisis of identity for me because I. I'm a little obsessive as a person and, um, and I'm, you know, you know, like a musician and being like somebody who does something creative for a living, my product is in a part, you know, me, it's, I'm, you know, these are my, like, these songs are like my impressions, my thoughts, my, you know, feelings and, and singing is, you know, I'm not selling like paper products, you know, like I get up on stage and like this sound comes out of my body and that's like people buy a ticket for that. So it's hard losing your voice when not just your livelihood, but a lot of your identity kind of comes from it, which is admittedly not the most healthy thing. I don't think anybody should derive too large a, uh, you know, too, too large, uh, a percentage of their own personal, you know, fulfillment from their profession. And yet at the same time, I think it's really, it is also really a wonderful thing to have a profession that you're proud of, you know, at something that was, we were in a bar the other night after the spin doctors gig and me and the sound guy, we're talking about, um, sure. 58 microphones for like 15 minutes. And the bartender was like, what are you guys talking about? And we were like, we're, we've been talking about one microphone for 15 minutes. Like, you know, but that's like, I mean, that's awesome. You know, it's great to have a profession where, you know, that's so absorbing and, 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 and to, to be able to like, so there was a, there was, there was a desolation um, about losing my voice, you know, because so much of, um, so much of who I am is sort of wrapped up in what I do. Unfortunately, you know, for better or for worse, you know, it probably makes me a better musician that I'm so obsessed with it. Um, but I think, you know, it's important to, um, you know, to find fulfillment outside of your profession too, which I do, you know, I have a daughter and I am happily married and I got two cats and, but yeah, it was really, it was um, devastating to lose my voice. And, you know, I'm like, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do if I don't get my voice back? How am I going to make a living? Because, like I said earlier in the interview, I suck at everything else. Right. No. So it, it was scary. It was rough. But, you know, this 
I think that I started this album before I lost my voice this time. I lost my voice for a year. Wait, so, so you know, like the second when, time, wait, the second time you lost your voice, you lost it for a year. Yeah, both times I lost it for about a year. Could you talk or just not sing, or what, what extent? This time, the, this time I did. I considered getting this procedure the first time, but it was 15 years earlier, and and it was not um, perfected. But the second time, I did undergo this procedure where they shot some collagen into the musculature uh, outside of my paralyzed vocal cord, which pushed it over so that it could make contact with the other vocal cord. Um, And the idea is, um, according to my doctor, that it sort of tricks the mind into recovering faster and more completely because you're actually able to, um, to to make noises with your voice. I sounded like the I, I sounded like the Godfather, but I could talk. I couldn't raise my voice above like you know. If we went to a bar, it was a drag. I couldn't talk in a bar above like you know a din, you know, in a in in a restaurant or something like that, or at a concert. Um, but I could I could just talk. Um, but you know, I sounded like this, um, and it just slowly recovered. Over, over time, I took really good care of myself. I got in really good physical condition. I sort of forsook music for a while. I just didn't do any music. I felt like music had kind of betrayed me. So I, I did chess, and I read a lot of books, and I read a lot of trashy, like, mystery novels. And, um, and then um, it started to come back. And um, you know how it is. I mean, you lose something for a while. You don't know what you got, what's gone. I mean, I really came back after this record um, with a vengeance. You know, we initially, I'm touring um, solo acoustic um, with this record, but the record has like full production. So initially I was like, I'm going to try and like make this reflect the way I'm going to play this stuff in concert and do like a record that's relatively stripped down and acoustic. But gradually Roman, the producer Roman Clune, and I realized these songs really um were kind of bigger than um than that sort of production so when i came back i was like let's get sean pelton the drummer from um saturday live and let's get jesse murphy who's the bass player of like he's played with everyone from like um you know he's a founding member of um the brazilian girls amazing amazing player and we just basically expanded Roman really had this vision for these songs production-wise. It was bigger than the, the one I had initially um, thought of. And so, you know, eventually we put a few um, string orchestrations on. There's some horns on a few of the songs. Um, and it's really beautiful. You know, it's really, really lovely. And, I'm, you know, in a way, like, it was really rough losing my voice. But in a way, it was really like a punctuation mark in my career. It was a moment for me to, like, take stock you know, of my gifts and um, and how lucky I am as a person and just to, like, step on it and, like, go for it. I've been wanting to make a solo record for a really long time and I've just sort of been, like, you know, uh, how would I do it? What am I going to do? I don't really know. Uh, Money, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, when my voice came back, I was like, you know what? You could get hit by a goddamn truck tomorrow or lose your voice again, or like, this is like, you get all these tunes, you get all this, like, things going for you, just get in the goddamn studio, and and just, you know, 
fish or cut bait, you know? Now, when you said, you said, you know, you started working on it before you lost your voice. So you start working on it, you lose your voice. Now, when you get your voice back, do you write more songs and did they reflect in what you were going through when you lost your voice or anything? Um, there's one song on this record um, called uh, Gonna Need Someone that I wrote while my voice was gone. Um, I didn't, no, I didn't really like. I had a collection of like a huge backlog of tunes. Like I could go in the studio right now and make another record. Um, you know, the songs on this record are in alphabetical order. Why'd you choose that? Because they were in the Dropbox in alphabetical order. And um, when we had all of the, the songs like mixed, um, and just in the name of like being systematic, I just listened to them right down in the Dropbox file, in the order that they were in alphabetical order, because that they didn't have they didn't have track numbers yet, because we didn't have a, an order yet, so they just came up in alphabetical order. I listened down to it in alphabetical order just to be sure I listened to everything, and I was like, this is this sounds really good in this order, and so I called Roman. I was like, Roman, just listen to them straight down in the in the Dropbox in alphabetical order. And he, he texted me later on that night and was like, that's the order. We're putting it in alphabetical order. And it was like, also, there's like a subtext of like, how badass are these songs so you can just put them in alphabetical order and they sound good. Like, it, you know, the, the, I guess the subtext is you can put them in any order. I don't know. But they, they the, I guess my point is like, I, I've, I've been, you know, writing and writing. I'm very prolific. I don't write all the time, but in... Um, I always write in spurts, like seasonal kind of, not not pertaining to an actual like season of the year that I've ever noticed, but I sort of like work on my skills for a while and then I work on some stuff and I write just crap and notebooks and stuff and then all of a sudden I'll write a bunch of tunes and then I sort of go through the whole cycle again. But I mean, over the years I've been very prolific and I have tons and tons of, of uh, material that would be suitable to be on a record, which is nice because this record... I just basically selected, um, you know, I selected the tunes that, um, I, I had the title track, Angels and One-Armed Jugglers. I started that tune um, three or four years ago. I wrote it on the steering wheel of my car driving across the 59th Street Bridge. And um, I just thought Angels and One-Armed Jugglers would be a great title for the record. And um, I find when you when you latch onto a title early, it, the record ends up being really thematic. And this record, um, it mentions angels a couple of different times. And, um, you know, if you, if you listen to this record, there's really kind of, a um, you know, uh, it's a bit of like a celebration of like the freak show and the underdog and, um, the divinity of, the, you know, the, the lame and the misbegotten. Um, so, yeah, I forget what your question was. <laughs> no, I was just saying if, if it had changed you when you wrote, but you said you had so much material. And so when, when you have so much material, how do you pick what you're going to put on? Because you say you're very prolific. And it's like anything, if you look at... 50 things like you know, me and my girlfriend just were, were you know we're, we just moved back to New Jersey and we're you know we're, we 
stuff in LA doesn't go here, the pictures. So when you sit there and you look through these pictures, you go, what do I, what do I put on the wall? How do you do it when you have so many songs? How do you decide what songs you're going to pick out of this whole catalog? Mm, um, you know, like, like I said, I had this theme. So I was like, um, you know, angels and one-armed jugglers. I knew that was going on. And then, um, there's, um, saving graces on the record. And it's got this line. I'm tired of songs about angels. I could use a punch in the face. Well, that's ironic, you know, because like I've got the title of the record has angels in it. And then now here's a song that has, um, a line, you know, I'm tired of songs about angels. And the, the, the turnaround line refers to like saving grace, which is this like sort of divine and celestial concept, you know, so that, boom, that fits in. Um, and then like too young to fade. The last song on the record is like, uh, um, um, has a line about um, um, I'm on I'm on the high wire while the lava boils below. So there's a high wire. So I'm talking about jugglers, and there's a, there's I mentioned a high wire. See, I just find like it's really interesting. I discovered a long time ago um, that you know you write and you just work on stuff. And I I write every morning. I write like three pages, and I just it's all stream of consciousness. Some days I write, you're an asshole, you suck, you're an idiot, why are you doing this? And other days I write, you know, something interesting. Um, but what you find is when you go back through, like, a, a notebook, you're like, wow, I was really into, you know, angels that during the time that I wrote this notebook, you know? Like, I'll, I'll text me about a month to fill a notebook, you know? So I'm like, well, look at that, you know, I was really into, like, you know, I wrote um, Pocket Full of Kryptonite. It's funny, a lot of songs from that period of time have, like, pockets in them. And um, you just find, like, as a writer, I think, you, you, you think, oh, I'm just writing a bunch of random shit, but your brain is fixated on certain themes and certain thoughts and certain metaphors and certain ideas that are, like, kind of floating around in different, in different forms. So I just wanted to... It's funny because I think this record you know, has a bunch of really diverse songs on it. It's got a tune that sounds almost like a jazz standard. It's got some rock stuff, and it's got some things that verge on, like, the country, and it's got some sort of freaky songs where it's like, I don't really know what to, uh, how to describe it. I, people are, are definitely latching on to, like, the Americana kind of, uh, you know, uh, designation. Um, but I've never really, like organize things by genre i've always organized songs thematically um and you know you make a record you know you need to have a certain amount of like up-tempo material and stuff that's like compelling from a rhythmic standpoint and you want to have a certain amount of stuff with um like an emotional depth to it that might be um that might be um a little more down tempo and give the ear like a break from the more frenetic material and so you know you, you basically like it's sort of like I don't want to say it's like math, you know, but you're like, it's like going to the grocery store. You know what I mean? You need to, you need to pick up milk, bread, coffee. And, um, you know, you want to come home with like a bag of stuff so that you have like, you know, a couple of meals to eat over the next couple of days. You know what I mean? Yeah. So now, now are you, are you happy with the end product? Do you sit there and you go, man, I'm really proud of this work. Uh, yeah, I think this is, um, the best thing I've done since Pocketful of Kryptonite. I, I'm on a personal level, you know, I don't want to like, you know, sound immodest or anything like that, but I don't think I can make a better record. I don't think I could have made a better record. I, I feel like 
um, the, the material is my strongest material. And, um, I was really lucky to work with the personnel that I worked with, you know, beyond, um, Sean Pelton and Jesse Murphy and, um, you know, the, the drummer and bass player and, uh, Rob Cloris is a genius and the, on the keyboards and, and Andrew Carrillo, the guitar player. Um, we had, um, Johnny Dinklage, who's probably the best violinist in New York and, um, uh, Henry Hay did the arrangements. His, um, he's had an extraordinarily illustrious career working with, um, um, everybody from David Bowie to, um, um, uh, Rod Stewart, like, uh, and I can just go on and on. Steven Bernstein played slide trumpet and trumpet on it. He's the guy that's a genius. So the musicianship is just so beautiful. I was lucky enough to work with these people that are just sublimely talented. And I was super flattered because as musicians, they came in super prepared. Um, these are people I really intensely admire and they came in and they had like really analyzed the songs and had a lot of really, really cool interpretive approaches. Like and I mentioned that line before from um, too young to fade is the 11th track. It's the last track on the record. It's not the last track we recorded, but um, there's that line about I'm on the high wire while the, while the lava boils below. And like Sean plays this little like press roll, you know, like I'm on the high wire while the lava boils below. He goes like as if he's like the, the drummer in the circus, you know, like while the trick is happening. There's, there's so many little like little moments on the record where those guys like really listen to the lyrics and they, and they made these little musical vignettes happen around, um, around the words. Um, it's just like they brought so much to the table. Um, so yeah, I feel really good about this record. And, and, you know, like, I think people talk about, um, a lot of really interesting conversations, you know, about like creativity and making a living. And I've always, I'm not saying this works for everybody because I've, I've worked with a lot of people who, you know, really have this wonderful pop sensibility and they just like flip a switch and they make stuff that's so palatable and, you know, write music that's just so, you know, so like just ear candy. And I've never really written that way. I've always just kind of like sat down and I've just written a bunch of stuff. Um, and, um, and I just hone my skills when I'm not writing. And, um, you know, some of it ends up being really kind of palatable. And, um, I mean, I think it's all pretty palatable. Um, I hope it's all pretty palatable because I don't really write like, you know, crazy dissonant stuff. But, you know, some stuff's more catchy than other stuff. And, um, um, you know, it's funny you mentioned like an album. I really wanted to make an album. I wanted to make a record that people could you know, listen to from beginning to end that would be thematic and would tell a story and would take the listener kind of on a, on a, uh, on a trip. But at the same time, you know, you want each song to stand up on its own. And, um, yeah, I, you know, in the end you got to like in this life, you know, whatever project you're doing, you've got to like make something that you believe in, that you like, and you have to make like each decision as you go along, you got to be like, yeah, this is the right thing. And we just worked on this record. We worked on these recordings until like the hair stood up on our arm, you know, and, and, and then we were like, Oh yeah, that's the idea. That's what we need. So 
I feel really good about it. That's awesome. Um, That's awesome. Well, it comes yeah. out. It comes out October twentieth. Yes. Okay. Well, you yeah. know what? I I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to talk with me because I, I listened to the album. I really liked it. I'm probably gonna listen to it again when we get done because that's the way I am. Because then when you get after I interview someone, I get more insight to their songwriting. So now, now your website. What's your website? Uh, it's uh, um, com. But okay. it's, if you go to chrisbaron.com, it it comes up too. And your Twitter is um the Chris Baron. Okay, so people follow him. Look up his old music. Look up this October twentieth. Check it out because this is really good. I'm not lying to you. So people follow Chris Barron. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Website is CooperTalk.net. You can find over 645 episodes of there. Uh, email me Cooper at CooperTalk.net. And that's about it. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. This has been brought to you by Walk My Mind. And you guys have a great day. <laughs>